Hello, this is Joe Peters at Caldwell Banker. I'm about to introduce to you Professor James Hughes from Rutgers. He'll introduce himself as we get started and talk a little bit about his background. But Jim was the last person I had on my radio show back before COVID hit, and I thought it would be appropriate to have him come on again and talk about what's happened between March and today that would affect both employment and housing in New Jersey, and that will be the gist of our talks. Okay, we're on air. It's Joe Peters of Caldwell Banker, and with me is Jim Hughes of Rutgers. Jim, why don't you take a few seconds to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm the Dean Emeritus of the Edward J. Blaustein School of Planning and Public Policy. Uh, I was Dean from 1995 through 2017. And since then, I've been designated as a university professor uh, which gives me the privilege of teaching and doing research in any unit of the university. So I'm not tied to any specific one. And uh, over the past five or six months, we've expanded our traditional Rutgers Regional Report series to include a monthly fast track research notes where we're trying to track how the economy is responding to all the dislocations and disruptions caused by the coronavirus. Uh, we finished five of those issues, uh, and in about a week and a half, we'll uh, come out with issue number six. Jim, so I write to you asking, can I get the latest copy? Is there a public place where this can be found? Yes, there is. It's <clears throat> on the Rutgers website. Uh, it would be uh, S-O-A-R. I think if you Google... Rutgers Libraries SOAR, S-O-A-R, okay. stands for uh, scholarly, uh, let's see, S-O-A-R, scholarly output accessible at Rutgers. And essentially, there's a, a search box, you put my name in, uh, and most of the research I've done for the past seven, eight years are listed there. Okay. All five of the coronavirus and all the coronavirus ones uh, start with the word coronavirus. You could also search coronavirus. Uh, so how we got started- it's, it's Scholarly output accessible at Rutgers. That's, that's what's soared. It's really a great idea of, of putting everything that uh, it's up to individual faculty and staff to do it. But if you do a paper, you do a research report, you, get, you have a journal article, uh, you upload it to SOAR, and anybody in the world can access it. Right. I'm actually shocked, as a, as a side note, uh, on the last one, uh, you, it tells you how many uh, issues were downloaded, and it also tells you the countries that downloaded it. So uh, for some reason, the last couple issues, 30 or 40 downloads were made from France. So now I can brag now that I'm, I'm big in Paris, not just- I love it. I love it. We were just talking about Paris last night because one of the tennis matches is now in Paris and they were showing the Eiffel Tower when it blinks. And I remember we were at the, the oldest, finest restaurant in Paris for our last night there on the first trip. And we decided we'd walk over to the Eiffel Tower and we could see it. And we wanted to get there and take some video of the blinking, which only happens sure. between nine and 10, if I remember. And it looked close, but it wasn't. It was a two-mile walk because the Eiffel Tower is so big. By the time we got there, it had stopped blinking. But uh, Paris is a great city. It's uh, yeah. it's a Disneyland for adults. So, 
you've published five of these. I just read your last one before this, and I've referred back to the one before. I will put a link to our listeners on this podcast uh, as to where they can find it. Um, if they'd like to read it as well. But I too, since I've been podcasting, I'm amazed at how many people pick this up from other places. And um, my observation is probably similar to yours, but not as in-depth because I'm sure you've done a lot more. So our last conversation, I looked it up, was March 10th. It was a Tuesday afternoon and we sat in downtown Flemington at the radio station at the Chamber of Commerce. And we were talking about the migration reversing back towards the West in New Jersey, and that perhaps this virus that was on the forefront could exacerbate it or at least change that. And we never did another broadcast after that broadcast. The world shut down around the 20th of the month. And um, I had talked to you about two or three weeks ago and said, I want you to be my first broadcast back but the radio station's not open. So we're doing it now as a podcast, which will use the audio only as a result of this and people will be able to listen into it. So let's fast forward over five months. And I mean, if I was to look at the latest results, the latest results say employment, yes, has improved in New Jersey, which drives everything else. But the easy part is behind us. The 51% that's left is going to be the tough part. And that leads to the Nike swoosh versus the K effect, which we've seen to some extent so far. Is that a good assessment of it? Yes, uh, we had you know, a devastating decline in unemployment and economic activity from February to April. So it was, we turned it the two month great contraction. Uh, and economists suggested that that would continue for a while. But May, we had a dramatic turnaround. Uh, and we had four straight months following April uh, that we had a pretty significant uh, employment rebound. There were some, some speculation, maybe we'll see a V-shaped recovery, a long bounce back uh, and the like. Uh, but that has started to taper off significantly uh, in August and September. Uh, and nationally in September, it was the first month that the job growth fell below 1 million. We had four straight months. It was like 4.8, 2.6, 1.3, and now down to 600,000. So part of the bounce back was the uh, uh, Congress's $2.2 trillion uh, rescue package. Uh, but that was designed in mind that well, this is temporary. By the summer, uh, we'll have conquered the virus, uh, and this will temporarily keep us going. Uh, problem is, uh, it hasn't. The virus hasn't tapered off. Uh, uh, we're, we've shifted into a much slower growth. So we're sort of a continuation in uncharted territory. But growth, job growth, uh, is slowing. Uh, but I think there's one office market statistic that really tells the big picture uh, for the New York, New Jersey region, and that's uh, office occupancy uh, levels. Uh, that doesn't say whether it's vacant or leased. It's of all the space that exists, office space exists, how many, how many people have been brought back into the office by companies? Uh, 
Nationally, the figure is 25%. In New York City, which is mainly Midtown Manhattan and all parts of Manhattan, it's the lowest in the country. It's under 10%. So only 10% of uh, employees in Manhattan uh, are back in the office. Suburban offices in New Jersey are 33%. Really? Triple the, the occupancy level uh, of Manhattan. And that's reflected in the disparate uh, job growth figures uh, for New York City versus New Jersey. New Jersey's growing uh, much more rapid than New York City as New York is really lagging badly. I understand that talking to John Maddox in Somerset County, and I wanted to get, he's the economic development manager for Somerset. Yes. His, his feel was on office occupancy. And he said the jury is still out in his mind because some of the offices have started to reopen in New Jersey on a one week, 50% work and the other week, the other 50% work and the third week, they try to commingle a little because they don't need the diversity of them not ever talking to each other. Um, but he said, even though they need more square footage, we only have half the people coming in. So that's why he's saying the jury is still out. In your episode four, you talked about the elevators being the issue in New York City and any tall building in New Jersey, and that still exists. I have clients telling me that it takes for the skeleton staff they have in over an hour and a half to get everybody up to their floor in New York City. So the elevators are an Achilles heel. But the economy, I mean, if people are not employed, if 50% of our state roughly is still, 50% of the people who got unemployed in the last six months are still unemployed, and that curve is going to be a slow swing back, it's troubling with one exception. And that I listened to United Health talked the other day, and not United Health, United Way of New Jersey, and they talked about Alice and Alice being 40%. Those are the, you're familiar with that term, I take yes. it. Yes. Um, Alice, standing for our, our listeners, asset limited, income constrained, but employed people. These are people who typically will never own a house or live in a development that the people who are going to New York live in, but they're all over. Um, and a good example might be the people pumping your gas, the people ringing your groceries, your people that you see in the retail environments are Alice people. And they've always been here. They always will be here. And according to the director in Hunter Inn, she sees the gap being getting wider between Alice and uh, what it was, um, the non-Alice people. But if if 40% of the population and Hunter and Somerset are pretty affluent counties where I do my business are Alice and we're 50% still haven't got their jobs back. I have to presume with one caveat that a lot of them are Alice people. They probably wouldn't have bought a house anyway. And the caveat would be that she also said yesterday's talk that think about it, Alice people can't work from home. They got to get up and go somewhere. And I'm not so sure they are to a good extent. Some of the people went back to work. Oh, exactly. There, there is a, that's why when we look at alternative uh, or the alphabet soup of right. 
recovery patterns of a V-shaped, a W-shaped, an L-shaped. Uh, what it looks like to this point is a Nike swoosh symbol, uh, which rather than a sharp upswing, we see a gradual upswing that tapers off. And it's almost a perfect swoosh overall for both the nation and New Jersey. Uh, however, uh, it really should be refined that the, the primary line of the swoosh uh, going to the right when you look at the symbol really has to be partitioned into two parts. And that's where the K-shaped recovery comes in, uh, where we see that general path is really composed of multiple paths, but there are primarily two of them. And the upper, upper part of the K uh, that's doing very, very well are the elite credentialed uh, remote working office workers. Uh, and those that uh, whose jobs were shifted from the office to home uh, and were able to do their job remotely, uh, these are generally higher educated, higher skilled workers or knowledge workers, uh, they're doing quite well. But for every one of those elite credentialed workers, you may have three or four really support service workers whose uh, occupations require them to do face-to-face -face contact with people. Uh, it's really much clearer. Uh, it's, a, it's the same phenomenon, but it's much clearer in Manhattan where uh, uh, you have your credentialed workers working at home remotely. And it's like a ghost town in Midtown Manhattan because you had three or four service workers servicing each one of those office workers. And that would range from uh, the food cart to the upper end restaurant, to the office cleaners, to uh, all the maintenance workers, to the high end stores service, servicing the uh, office jobs and the like. And that's evident in New Jersey too, but not as clear. Uh, we don't have one spot where we could actually look and see are people there, are they not there, right? And the like. So, yeah, it's uh, this is real. There are substantial, there always were disparities, but as in most areas, the coronavirus has acted as a gasoline on the fire accelerant, you know, whether it's the disparities between different. Uh, occupational groups, different racial groups. Uh, uh, we also, uh, certainly uh, the acceleration of uh, um, New York City residents to the New Jersey single family housing market had been in effect basically due to the aging of millennials into the child rearing stage of the life cycle. Uh, but boy, has it speeded up uh, with the coronavirus. So I'm hearing two things. I'm hearing one, from this conversation, but in general, that even though housing in New Jersey has bounced back, as a matter of fact, we've just eclipsed 2019 year to date in both Hunterdon and Somerset. And interestingly, Somerset just went past last year's year to date numbers and Hunterdon went 20% past last year's numbers. So they're moving further out. But what I'm hearing is that the people because the New Jersey economy isn't strong enough to be supporting these numbers are predominantly coming from New York to the West. And that most of this business is coming out of New York, but it's tapering off as we speak. Do you feel the same way? Yeah. Uh, 
The, uh, you know, we've yet to invent a trend that lasts forever. And, you know, there was that initial burst, but there's still, I think, uh, the basic trend is operational. Again, you never can maintain warp speed. Eventually you have to decelerate there. Uh, but that's not unusual. Uh, sort of the golden era of housing production in New Jersey was 1950 to 1970. Uh, we were adding a thousand units per week for a thousand straight weeks, uh, which comes to a million housing units in 20 years. Uh, most of that was suburbanization out of New York City and Philadelphia into New Jersey. Well, so, uh, <clears throat> you know, we have to value that. That's a tremendous economic accelerator uh, when that happens. And the job, <clears throat> it's interesting, those people suburbanizing uh, are, the, are the lucky ones that are able to uh, commute remotely uh, rather than physically commuting. Right. So what, I think what we'll be seeing, I mean, <clears throat> is that's not gonna change. And, and part of the, it's not only the elevators in the 30, 40 story building that are inhibitors uh, for the return of office workers in New York City. Uh, it's having to use the buses, the trains, the subways. And the transit agencies are doing a superb job of cleaning the trains, cleaning the subways, uh, making sure they're as disease free as possible. Uh, but I think they're, Commuters are still hesitant, uh, they're suspicious, and no matter how good uh, the facilities are sanitized, you just get one bad actor coming on a subway right. car or a bus, uh, and you know, that could cause real, real problems. Uh, so that's surprisingly has, you know, the two, three-story walk-up office buildings in New Jersey, office buildings you can access automobile, and the like have been giving us really uh, at least a short-term boost. But in the office market, a lot of the action is of companies looking to set up satellite facilities. And they're looking for very short-term leases. They're testing the waters. You know, they may lease space uh, uh, for one year um, and they still have the rental obligations perhaps uh, in Manhattan, but we're, we're seeing the potential start of a new hub and spoke model uh, where you have sort of a distributed workforce, maybe having your satellite facility where you have a number of, your, of, of, of workers, office workers, where they already live. Uh, so they could go to that facility one, two, three days a week if they have to interact with other employees. You can't uh, work at home 100% of the time. Uh, and you know, some, that central hub, uh, its functions may evolve. And one of the uh, architectural firms I heard their phrase was, I wish I had invented it, the hub as a club. And so pe people like to work at home because one of the complaints of sort of the open work, open workspace and the like, uh, and not having private offices is they really didn't have spaces to concentrate and they really did need private spaces to do a significant part of their work. Okay, that can be done at home. But then when you wanna interact, you schedule people to come back to the hub club uh, so people can interact and you can 
try to maintain your corporate culture and have people right. learn from one another. But that's a regularly scheduled event. It's not, you know, it's not five days a week, eight hours a day. So uh, we're just in the early stages of testing out this whole new set of uh, workplaces and the nature of work. And to some degree, it may be, uh, maybe, maybe we have experienced a major market failure over the past decade, whereby uh, we were sort of on uh, autopilot. Of, oh, this is the way we always worked. You know, we brought people in five days a week. They commuted two hours a day. They were in the office for you know nine to five every day. Uh, maybe we didn't need that. You know, that was so. Everything is being rethought at this stage, and it's conflicting. Some companies seem to say, "Wow, remote working works really well." Other companies, due to the nature of their business, really want people together in the office to interact. Uh, so it'll be interesting at watching how that plays out. But you know, will we have a, a new, completely new business geography? Uh, will we go back to uh, the way it was in February? Uh, most likely it's gonna be a mixture of the two. So one thing that I heard you say, uh, and it was a couple of months ago on another interview was that in New York City, the technology people were to the east out in Brooklyn. Or, or to the east of New York City, and that the jobs would follow in that direction. Did I hear that correct when I listened? Uh, I'm not sure if I was uh, that strong uh, in terms of overall direction. Certainly, uh, Brooklyn is a hot spot. Uh, it was the fastest growing of the boroughs. And it started to get some of the high-tech employment, but the real high-tech employment, there's several key spots. One is Roosevelt Island, where you have Cornell Tech, Bloomberg financed a lot of those buildings. Uh, and that was one of the accelerants for the high-tech clustering in New York City. Uh, but Google, uh, they occupy what is known as Inland Freight Terminal Number One, which was a $2.9 million former Port Authority warehouse. Uh, and they've been expanding on the west side of Manhattan. Uh, and anything on the west side of Manhattan uh, is good for New Jersey uh, because of the path linkages, because of New Jersey transit linkages. Uh, but we have that whole corridor following the High Line uh, from 33rd Street down to the lower, right. uh, which is really uh, the uh, centerpiece of that high-tech economy. Hmm. So they're on the west side of Manhattan, but not in New Jersey. No, not yet. Uh, okay. They're, but they're moving in the right direction versus Brooklyn. For New Jersey. Yeah. But it's accessible to us. Yes. It's a lot easier uh, to get to that location than it is from Westchester County. So one of the things I've observed, and I've talked to several of the mayors about, is we used to be a bedroom community. And obviously, obviously, 
that isn't the case anymore. And what I mean by bedroom is we went elsewhere to work, brought the money home and lived here, but most, a lot of time spent commuting. We're now more of a live, work, play slash educate community where we're not leaving the community. And a good example, I live in Clinton. I've got guys that work for AT&T and Bedminster are never going back to work. And that's only 22 miles away. They weren't going all the way to New York City. So we're seeing less commuting in general. And I think that will, to some extent, remain permanent based that these guys were a good example. Um, but I don't think, and this is what was in your last report, we've started to comprehend and digest just what that means to us locally. I mean, to the individual, it means I don't need a new car every three years anymore if I was using it to commute. And I'm not gonna create all the emissions and pay all the tolls and eat lunch over there. So it almost seems like the live, work, play and educate environment has stopped the commuting that was not necessary, <clears throat> but all the jobs to support them that you described earlier are still over there while we're living over here in the West. And that has to unfold. Um, we're not I was sitting in, in Watchung last week in a nearly $2 million facility and um, home, really nice. Uh, and people are coming in from Nassau looking at it. So it's not just New York, it's the island in general. Um, the brief, two weeks before, I, I had people from Brooklyn and Staten Island, and you could argue, okay, that's the city. But I think in general, because the island has always been a bottleneck, depending how far you get out on it. Um, it's a horrible commute if you're not on a train. People are thinking about New Jersey and the people that have moved already are people who could probably buy for cash and then sell their place or keep both. Um, now, the people in New York were to great extent came from outside of New York, the working force. Yes, there were people who lived and worked in New York, but I would say they were probably less than 20% of the people who worked in New York, actually lived in New York. Everybody else, I remember when I was single after my divorce, when you worked in New, New York, it was hard to find somebody who was geographically desirable because everybody came from a different area. So um, now that they're not coming in, those suburban areas have a whole new dynamic in front of them. And I'm not sure they even realize it yet, or if they do realize it, have been able to digest and know what it means. I think a lot think it'll return to a great extent to the way it was. I, for one, don't. I don't see um, us going back to the way we were, other than what you mentioned, which was the hub as a club, is a great word for it because we have a company based in Hunterdon that is totally virtual. He has 43 employees. They live, work all out of their houses all over the country. They do in excess of $15 million. And he brings them together every six weeks. He says he has a very careful hiring practice to make sure he gets the right temperament. And then you're hired on a trial, your, your first two weeks or your last two weeks of your interview process. But that was in existence before we hit COVID-19. So companies are already going virtual. It's, it's a whole new way of thinking, but I'm not thinking a lot of companies go virtual, but I think what the end result means, more people can live in 100 in Somerset County, which once again is where my business is at than before. 
and not have to go to work somewhere else. Or if they do go to work somewhere else, it's for not as much time. But that culture thing, the, the hub as a club is key. Yeah, I think uh, going forward with this, uh, it has long been predicted that information technology would be a decentralizing force. But over the past 15 years, it was not. And I think to a large degree, it was due to millennials who were really the critical workforce of the future that most companies uh, were looking at, what do they call it, the next-gen workforce. Uh, they wanted to cluster together. Uh, they wanted to interact. They wanted the, the LWP environment, live, work, play environment that had the restaurants and the bars and what have you, they could walk to work. Uh, and that was a driving force. Then you have two things at the same time. You have uh, all of a sudden, they're not immune to aging. The oldest millennial this year is 39 years of age. Uh, the bulk of them are uh, in their late 20s, early 30s. Uh, and uh, their lifestyles are changing and they're moving into the child rearing stage of the life cycle. Uh, but I think that is being... Oh, and they're going to be, if they all suburbanize, doesn't mean it's going to be a ghost town left behind. Uh, you have uh, Generation Z, uh, post-millennials. Uh, the oldest is, I think, 23 or 24 this year. So they're starting to graduate from college. Uh, and uh, we've all seen how they're behaving in college. They still like to party despite coronavirus. Right. So not going to be hesitant at all to go to back to Manhattan and the like if they, all their colleagues and friends are there. So millennials are going to be replaced. Uh, but now we are seeing the impact of information technology on location. And just the fact of having Zoom, uh, that uh, the coronavirus has accelerated Maybe a transition that would have taken another four or five years. We were forced to do that in three or four months. Uh, and most people were very hesitant on Zoom or WebEx initially, uh, but it's become a part of their daily lives. Uh, that wouldn't have happened. A big push behind us. Absolutely. Us. And I, I could just, I traveled for a living for 12 years. I got on a plane as with SAP and Oracle, and I called on major retailers around the country. I can recall flying to San Francisco, standing up in a lobby in the dot com at on Post Street, talking to Walmart.com because they had no place to sit down, and flying back the same day. What we did there can be now be done over Zoom just as effectively, other than maybe measuring the other person personally, which you like to do. Um, I have a divorce attorney in one of my groups and says it's really hard to see someone's emotions over Zoom. You need so much interpersonal. But a lot of what we did can be done now through technology at a lot easier pace. So that part I think we keep. There's other parts that I think going back face to face for the hub as a club, for the divorce attorney, seeing the emotions to actually be in a courtroom. I just read this morning, the they can't the, the debate was gonna go uh, virtual and Trump says he won't attend it. You know, I, I need to be in the same room. So, I mean, just use that as a barometer for getting the politics of it. I think he's absolutely correct. Um, I, I can recall when we, I always brought an assistant with me when I traveled, and I always had the assistant sit at the other end of the room and watch the body language, which I might not see. 
And it was amazing. I wish we had text because she would tell me, when you said this, that guy folded his arms. You hit a nerve. Um, you can't see that over Zoom. So it's not the answer to everything, but it's the interim way of getting along. And it got accelerated, as you said. But I'm looking at the predictions. I mean, if we're going to go 2% above sales for last year in units in New Jersey by the end of the year, and then next year go somewhere between 8 and 12%, which is next year's prediction, I don't know where these units are going to come from because we're not building them. We're selling everything that we're listing. We have less than a month's supply in most of the counties. Um, it's a void. It's it's sort of imploding on itself that we're, we took towns like Warren Watchung, which took eight or nine months to sell a million dollar house. They're now selling them inside of 60 days. And that will accelerate as well if this keeps up, although it's supposedly tapering off, according to somebody I don't want to mention his name that I listened to. Um, and if that's really the case, well, maybe we can catch up and get a little bit back to normal. But you get under 400,000 in Hunterdon or Somerset County, 500 in Somerset. The house is sold the day it goes on the market, multiple offers. You get all the way up to a million before you start running out of steam. And we didn't have that kind of a market. So our house prices are increasing because people are paying more money for them. And because the lower inventory is running out, they're finding a way to buy something a little bit bigger. And the third thing that's happening is the fastest growing cohort right now is the older millennials, the 35 to 40s. They are now having children. They are now fed up with living in the city. I think in our last conversation, you mentioned they were probably um, the 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 millennials that were living in the Jersey City Bayonne area were finding it, they could afford it, but their children couldn't. And, and I think those Gen Zs, as I never heard them called that, but I'm sure you're right, that's the next letter. Um, they're not gonna be going back towards where mom and dad grew up. Yeah, the, the, well, the housing market's been turned on its head, but we're, we're paying the price now uh, and, and you know the inventory much better than I do and the lack of inventory uh, that exists. We're paying the price for really a couple decades of uh, really restrictive policies on home building. Right. Jersey is obviously a difficult to build environment. And we've seen the past 10 or 15 years, the housing market having flipped, whereby you know, in the 70s and 80s, 75% of the uh, building permits or housing starts were single family units. Uh, uh, more recently, the past decade, it's been 75% multifamily dwellings. So we have not been building uh, those single family units. And those that are built uh, are really more at the upper end of the market. So we don't have the, the supply particularly uh, Starter homes suggest, you know, something very low scale and the like, but that's not really true. I mean, uh, starter homes were the split levels in the 50s and 60s, so ranch houses in the 50s and 60s, uh, which were palaces for the people that bought them. Uh, and uh, it wasn't hard to build at that point in time. And that affordable housing, uh, you know, was linked to job growth rates. And 
you know, now it's uh, extraordinarily difficult perhaps to uh, attract employees if the housing doesn't match you know, what those employees want. And I thought that was one of the interesting trends in uh, the 2010s. The old uh, uh, assumption was the company would put its headquarters where the CEO lived. Uh, and if the CEO lived in Far Hills, well, we'll build the new Merck headquarters uh, in uh, uh, White House Station and the like. Uh, not anymore. The uh, locational decisions are now uh, in the C-suite, but they bring the human resources officer in. And right. that human resources officer used to be sort of delegated to the side. That's central. I think the first question is, where are our employees going to want to live? What are, what, what's the distribution of our employees? Where do they live? And that's become central to the decision-making process. Uh, but with remote, you know, that's, again, that's adding a new twist. But certainly uh, the uh, ability to uh, distance learn, distance work, whatever you do, uh, does give a new advantage to 100 in Somerset counties and the like. We were we weren't written off completely, you know. You know at the extreme, the suburbs were 20th century ways of living. Now we're much more sophisticated. We're going to go to 24/7 environments. Uh, completely different now with coronavirus. The other we mentioned LWP, uh, the term I'm starting to use more often uh, given the school situation uh, is WLWP. And instead of just having live, it's live, learn, work environment. You've, you called it education before, but I, I like the double LWP. We're internalizing all, that's the new dimension of housing. We're internalizing all those functions right. within the house itself. Uh, before we would depend on, okay, the kids go to school, uh, so we don't have to have any space in the house, maybe for homework and the like. Uh, the health club is in the house. You're not going to go to the health club anymore due to the thing. So uh, all these, those environmental factors, external environmental factors that attracted millennials uh, are now part of the housing unit itself. Uh, and you know, one or two of the housing executives that I've talked to for building firms they're adapting that model immediately uh, into their housing designs to make sure you have spaces that can be used for the home office or could be used uh, uh, for the children's education and the like. Uh, and that's a, that's a pretty dramatic change. It certainly is. I mean, in the, in the 70s, we built very compartmentalized homes like the colonials of the 70s started to become open floor plans in the mid 80s and all the way up through almost current. And it's not what people are looking for anymore. Um, they're looking for more compartmentalization, a place for mom, place for dad, a place for each one of the kids, at least in a short term, a place to play and a place to um, exercise. Um, the backyard becomes important. Swimming pools, which we couldn't give away, are now a premium. And people's thoughts have just gone upside down used to be that people followed work. And from what you described with people like Merck, it's almost like work is following people. Where are the people I'm going to get to come here? 
And then once that happens, the third thing is retail, such as buildings and malls and, and the support all follow that the first two. Um, yet the jury's still out. It's still so early in this. We've changed so much, but we have so long to go. Yeah, and we didn't even get into uh, the great bricks and mortar retail meltdown. And right. That's accelerated by the coronavirus. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, Amazon is now looking for last mile delivery stations since their business has boomed. So I think we're going to see a transition from some smaller shopping centers that may have a 50,000 square foot vacant space in there. Uh, that's going to be a, a, a sub hub, a delivery hub for, for Amazon. So uh, that would be uh, the smaller distribution vehicles, you know, the Ford Transit vehicle, the that van and the like. So instead of people driving to the shopping center, we're going to have a flotilla of those vehicles going out into the neighborhoods delivering the product. So uh, that's a completely different world. It sure is. I mean, I think I see it already in Amazon. I see it as I go to Walmart. They now have pickup places. I, I think Walmart has a way to go to catch up at Dever, but they're trying. And it's a, it, they see the difference. I think the thing I've seen working out of the house for the last six months is I've bought everything I need. I'm not calling Amazon as much as I needed. Uh, so I'm wondering if we haven't plateaued at least in, in some of the usage, but I've always, since I've been working at a house for the last 10 or 12 years, um, used Amazon instead of going to the store. You know, we now play a game is how can we get it delivered? Why leave the house? <laughs> it's like yeah. some things you want to go see and try it on, but not much. It reminds me of the uh, genius of blockbuster video and probably any young listeners don't know what, uh, you know, what, what blockbuster was, but when you used to want to rent a tape, uh, what was so disappointing is you wanted to get a movie. Uh, you go to the video store. They only had two copies and the copies were out. So 80% of the time you were disappointed then Blockbuster came up with the idea, we'll have 30 copies, so you're gonna be happy uh, uh, coming in because you're gonna get what you want. And it worked, they put everybody else out of business till they got knocked out of business. Yep. Uh, same thing, if you go shopping now, it, it's still a crapshoot of whether the inventory is gonna be in the store. Right. But if you use Amazon, you're gonna get it. You don't have a problem. Days. No matter what you need, you can get it in two days. Jim, I don't want to take up any more of your time. We're about 50% over what I suggested. But uh, what I would like to request is maybe we do this every three months or so and give the listeners an update. Um, anything that we didn't cover you'd like to say before we break off? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of businesses that uh, have been impacted pretty badly by remote working. Uh, and I think one of them that's underlooked is dry cleaners. Uh, people aren't wearing suits. They're right. not taking them to be cleaned. You go to your local dry cleaner and ask them how they're doing. Uh, boy, do you see glum faces there. Yeah. Their business has dropped off. Uh, and it's not going to bounce back very much from where we are now. And the need for the suits, which trickles down the Brooks Brothers, which I always say to Brooks Brothers, you know what I don't like about you is your suits never wear out. I want a new suit and the old suits get fine. 
uh, <laughs> I haven't put um, a suit jacket on now in six months. And we've gotten more casual. Our whole lifestyle has changed. And I think, you know, we, we saw people still building more stores and that has stopped even before all of this has stopped. But now it's, what are we at the stores we got? And uh, Lord and Taylor closing up in Bridgewater is a great example. That's a great location at a great mall, but what will it be going forward? Because the malls have become more experiential with the millennial demand than they have been. So you can't just build stores. I really question this Mall of America concept up by uh, the Meadowlands, how well it's going to do. I mean, just the fact that they want $15 to park there. Yeah, it worked out at Mall of America in Minneapolis, but that was, that was then, this is now. Well, the, the problem with experiential uh, is uh, that's face-to-face -face interaction uh, and yeah. that's what's being inhibited, inhibited today. So yeah, that was a, a strategy. Uh, we called it triple F for shopping centers uh, when traditional retailing was fading. Uh, food, fun, triple F uh, uh, types of activities. But again, that strategy has been turned on its head. So uh, maybe Lord and Taylor will be a last mile delivery center for Amazon. When you mentioned the last mile, because I know my son lives in Sarahville and he, they've taken the old duplicate Rite Aids and whatever that when Walgreens bought them up and turned them into FedEx delivery centers. Um, they are finding ways to reinvent it, but the, the owner of the property is probably not experiencing the rent that they used to get for it is better than being vacant. Jim, as always, this has been great. I appreciate you coming on with me. And um, once again, it's Jim Hughes from Rutgers talking with Joe Peters, a Coldwell banker. And um, I will put the link to your report out on the blog post for this podcast so that people can pull it down. I know I distributed to several of my management groups and they all, wow, there's a lot here. I, I'll uh, email you when we're finished the full list okay. uh, with links on them, as well as the SOAR link. So uh, look out for that in the next couple minutes. Very good. Jim, thanks okay. again. I'll talk to you in two or three months. Great. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Once again, this is Joe Peters at Coldwell Banker. Wow, what a lot of information Jim put out on the table in the last 45 minutes. It's a lot to think about. And Jim, thanks again for coming on. To finish up, I'm going to play a brief one-minute overview of my services. And hopefully you'll endure through that and we'll be finished. Thank you for tuning in. One of the biggest decisions in your lifetime is buying or selling a house. Choosing a realtor with strong client communication, technology, and marketing skills will dramatically improve your chance of success. That's why Hunterdon and Somerset's residents rely on Joe Peters. Joe believes his clients deserve a smooth and seamless experience, not a roller coaster ride. As a Coldwell Banker sales associate with 20 years of experience, he's helped hundreds of people to achieve their goals and dreams, no matter where they were in the buying or selling process. Here's what his satisfied customers have to say. Joe guided us through the process of selling our home and made a complicated transaction appear seamless. Joe is diligent and responsive without being pushy and truly keeps his client's best interest in mind. He would return calls within minutes if he didn't pick up. Joe accomplishes this by approaching every transaction from a business perspective. 
Initially, he tries to fully understand your goals and dreams and make them his own. Then he takes the mass amount of data that's available and distills it down to a few understandable action points. And finally, he controls the entire process through technology and marketing. The end result to you is a smooth, rewarding customer experience. Let Joe show you how to take his professional expertise and put it to work for you. To contact Joe, go to jpeters.com. You can call 908-238-0118 or text to 908-304-4660.